study in the book of Galatians, but we're actually going to begin our study in the book of Romans. And we have a very difficult and complex subject at hand. And I have to be very um, wise and careful as we begin this message. Uh, because as I preach, I get excited, and as I get excited, I start raising my voice and speaking too quickly, and that is very good for preaching, but not very good for teaching, and today is a, it's more information-laden than a typical message, so I have to calm my heart and slow down and take it step-by-step step as we navigate this issue, this complex issue Uh, concerning the dynamic, the relationship between the law and the gospel, between the law and the gospel, uh, between uh, grace and law, between indicatives and imperatives in the Bible. And this hermeneutic, this way of interpreting the Bible, uh, is affirmed by just countless Bible teachers. All the Reformed teachers, starting from Calvin and Luther on down, um, to today, um, affirm these two um, pillars, these two uh, realities that are in the scriptures, and how it is through that grid we are to understand the Bible. The Bible contains commands to us, and the Bible contains promises. And we need to understand the relationship that these two have with one another, and understand how we are to relate to each of these truths, how we are to relate to the law as Christians and how we are to relate to the gospel as Christians. Now, it might sound simple, but this is very difficult. This is what Pastor John Piper said. For the last 40 years of my ministry, no biblical issue has proved more recurrent or more vexing than the nature of the Mosaic law as it relates to the gospel and the new covenant. The pastoral implications for how you preach the gospel, how you aim at sanctification, how you comfort those who struggle, how you give assurance and admit people to the membership in the church are huge. So Pastor Piper has said that for 40 years, this has been the most vexing, most complicated, most difficult question for him in the pastoral ministry. And so I know I am what I'm getting into. I am, I'm just stepping into the ring, and I know it's going to be a long and arduous fight. And we're going to go 15 rounds, and after 40 years, I'm going to see the same thing at the tail end of it. Two, two weeks ago, we studied the heart of the gospel. We have the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, and we went to the heart, the core, the foundation of that gospel, which is that man is not justified by works of the law. We are not, we cannot be accepted by God. He will never declare anyone righteous in his sight who have brought up with them a posture of being righteous before a holy God through their good works. Anyone who does that, they will find that their works are like filthy rags and God will vanish them into eternal hell. That no one can be justified by works. The gospel is, the heart of the gospel is that we are justified by faith alone. That God 
in that last day will declare to anyone who says, God, I am justified not because I am good, but because you are good and you are so good, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins and I believe that I am saved and forgiven by his cross and that person will hear the words righteous, accepted, forgiven, welcome into the kingdom that I have prepared for you. That's the heart of the gospel and Luther has said that the whole Christianity hinges on this truth, that everything turns on this, everything depends on this. If we lose this article, we lose everything. There are many doctrines in the Bible. It's like our bodies. If I lose my left arm, I'll still live, right? If I lose my foot, I will still live. If I lose my heart, then I am dead. Likewise with the gospel, there are doctrines that without it, we could still be Christians. We still have hope for eternity. But without this article, then we are lost. We are without hope. We, we have perished. We are, we are separated from Christ. This is the article that we studied two weeks ago. And I need to slow down, take my breath, rest my beating heart. Right? I'm getting ahead of my, I'm getting too excited. Calm down. Right? That's the justification by faith. Now, Anytime this gospel is preached, the most common objection when it is faithfully preached and rightly understood is this, right? If God saves me by faith alone, if I am made righteous and I am forgiven once and for all, then why obey? Why sacrifice? Why suffer? James, you should have told me this via email. Why did I come to church today on this cold Sunday when I could be at home with my warm blanket? Why am I here if God loves me already? Um, At the women's retreat this past few months ago, that's one of the questions that the women received. So one, 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 one gal raised, if God loves me anyway, why bother? Why do anything? Why bother with obedience? Right, what incentive do we have to live for God? It's this, uh, if you won a lottery for $200 million, right? What would you do? I think most, most of us, I would think, first thing we would do, including stay-at-home moms, is quit their jobs, right? <laughs> right? Stay-at-home moms, you'd hire 10 nannies, right? The 10 baby whisperers to come and take care of your kids, right? So I think if you want a lottery of $200 million, the first thing you would do is you would quit your job. Why? Because why do you work for money? And if you have money, why go to work, right? You will walk with a swagger to your manager's office, and you would say, I resign, I quit, because... Your incentives do not work for me anymore because I'm a, 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 I am won the lottery. Well, likewise, spiritually. Spiritual, I, we won the spiritual lottery. We are justified by faith. If God gives righteousness away for free, then why? Who will ever work for him again? Now, when this question is raised, it's a good thing in this way. In two ways, it's a good thing. 
Like when, so this question has been raised more times in the past two years than in my whole ministry life. I don't think this question, I can't remember, I could be wrong, but in all my years of campus ministry, all my years teaching youth, all my years, first eight years at Cornerstone, I don't remember anyone asking me this question. Past two years, man, like, repeated question. And it's a good thing. First of all, it means that someone's listening, right? That means like you're, you know, you're like actually listening. You're actually like connecting the dots. Wait a minute. This is what James is saying? We're saved by, by, by faith alone? And he's perfect righteous imputed to me right now? And so God is pleased with me, not because I do these things, but he's pleased with me because of Jesus? And all of his righteousness is credited to me by faith alone? Wait, it doesn't make sense. I gotta ask this. This is too good to be true. Right? James, I have this question that why what, what's the incentive for us to obey and, and suffer for Christ? So when, when we hear this, and if you hear this in your ministry, when you go out witnessing and you hear this from that person, you should be like, Wow, you're actually listening. Right? You're not in one ear, the out the other. You're not filtering it through your own legal framework. You're actually taking the gospel at its face value. You're saying gospel is true, and you're wrestling with the implications, and therefore this objection is coming up. So therefore, it's a good thing in that way for the listener. Secondly, it's a good thing for the preacher. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that there is no better test of gospel fidelity then this accusation of antinomianism, right? Nomian is not a, a character in Star Trek, right? Nomian is a, someone who is uh, given to the law. Namas is Greek for law, right? They are for the law of God. They're committed to the law in a way where they're justified before God through the law. In a positional sense and a practical sense, their standing before God is based upon their righteousness through the law. They're nomians. Right, And so those who preach justification by faith are antinomians. We are against, we're not against the law. We're against this doctrine that positionally or practically you relate to God through the works of the law. Right? And the Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if you're preaching and someone questions this, that's a test and you're passing the test that you are actually preaching you're faithfully preaching the gospel of the Apostle Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? So if you preach a legalistic message, you will not hear this response. No one would say, no one would accuse you of being an antinomian because your message is so filled with law, not, not verses, but the idea that to be right with God, to please God, you have to do X, Y, Z. That idea, you're... Your, your message is so filled with that. Nobody's going to raise that question. Right? Only reason people will raise that question is if you're preaching the message of the grace in the scripture because it is such a radical message. I mean, this objection is never raised in a Roman Catholic church. Right? No one raises this question. What? This is too good to be true. Right? I'm just saved by faith? 
No, that's their message. Is no, you have to do a thousand one things and not do a thousand one things to be right with God. So in a Roman Catholic church, there's no objection here. In a Mormon church, no one raises objection. You got to go to missions for two years and all those things. In a Jehovah's Witnesses congregation, no one raises objection. But what they do is they raise this objection. They accuse the Protestants of this very thing. So when you ask this question with humility and grace and just genuine wanting to know, it's a good thing. But when you use this argument and you twist it to attack the gospel, that's insidious. And that's what all these cults do. right? The Roman Catholic Church, their accusation against Protestants, uh, Erasmus, 1528, Less than, uh, a te- only a 10 years after Luther po- uh, posted the 95 Theses, Erasmus asserted that Protestants, all they want are two things, right? Money and women. Right? That's the motivation behind their gospel presentation, right? To them, the gospel means to live as they please, and they accuse, Erasmus and the Roman Catholics accuse Protestants of antinomianism. So that's what uh, the uh, insidious objection of these false, te- false, false groups. They accuse Christians. Oh, those antinomians. Right? Those freedom people. Oh, those people who are not serious about obedience. Right? Mormons, we are serious about it. We don't, we don't smoke. We don't drink. We don't listen to secular t- radio. We don't watch TV. We don't watch movies. We don't drink caffeine. We go to m- missions for two years. We give to, to our, we have multiple kids. I mean, we are godly. Roman Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses, and they accuse Christians of antinomianism. Something that they don't hear, they ever hear within their context. Right? If it's used in that way, it is wrong. But this is a good question if it's raised in our hearts, genuinely, humbly, in response to the gospel. This was uh, part and parcel to Christ's ministry. Right, during Jesus' uh, ministry, during his incarnation, people called him a, a, a drunkard. Right? People called him a glutton. Right? And so he was saying, man, you guys are never happy. Right? There is no pleasing you. John the Baptist came right, in the desert right, eating locusts and honey, and you killed him. You are angry at him. And I come eating and drinking, and you're not happy with me. You call me a drunkard and a glutton. Right? You're calling me an antinomian, and you're calling, me, you're calling him a legalist. You're never happy. Christ faced, faced this throughout his ministry. The Apostle Paul faced this throughout his ministry. This question, Galatians is the first letter he wrote. And in every letter, this theme comes up again and again and again. And he raises it and he answers them. So like tonight, this Q&A is a good thing. Like both the New Testament was, res- was written in response to questions. Really a biblical, that's a, really a biblical a model of ministry where Paul Here's questions and he responds. Here's questions that are occasional letters. Here's questions and he responds. That's how a key part of ministry ought to be, Q&A, going back and forth with the Word of God. And so Paul, in his letters, he's he's consistently responding to this objection, to this gripe, to this accusation. And so to to study that, go with me to Romans chapter 5. And this is actually a passage that, Bob read, and, um, and Bob's walking with the Spirit with me, so we didn't plan this, and Bob read this passage. Romans 5.20, now the law came, right? The law, the Mosaic law came to increase the trespass. What? 
isn't the law given to stop, curb sin, to limit sin, right? The speed limit, right? No texting while driving. All these laws are given to, to limit uh, violation, not increase it. Paul's talking about not externally, but in the, in the heart, spiritually, right? Later on in Romans 7, Paul talks about the exact dynamic on a, as a case study. He uses himself as a, as a, as a petri dish, he, he, his own experiment, his own experience. And he says, how this happened? He said, in my own heart, when the, when the law came, do not covet, right? I would not have known what covetousness was. Were not for the law that commanded me, do not covet. But once I heard that, instead of helping me not to covet, what did it do? Romans 7, right? It produced in me all kinds of covetous desires in my heart, right? It's not that the law is evil. Law is not sin. Law is good. What is evil is my heart. When God said, don't, what I want to do is, I, I didn't even want to do it. Now I want to do it. My wife and I talk about this, like, when it says, do not touch, Srin has this desire. To, so, for illustration, years ago, when we first got married, I was recording MTV because Springsteen was playing, and he was playing with um, um, Wallflowers, Jacob Dylan, it was that, that song, right? So Springsteen's my guy, influenced by Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan's son's playing, and they're doing a joint song together. So I want to record it. So I'm telling Srin, Srin, don't, stop the VCR or whatever because I'm recording it. And she's like, man, I want to turn it off so bad. Like I had to like physically almost stop her because all the desires to stop the VCR increased. Soon as I said, don't touch the VCR. That's not in my notes. She was laughing as I remembered. But that's what happens to us, right? And so Paul is saying when sin came, externally it might curve sin, but internally, dynamic, spiritually in our hearts, it increases transgression. It multiplies it. Right? It flourishes in our hearts. But, but, verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Right? Sin multiplied, but the, God, the grace of God multiplied all the more. Another version, when sin abounded, grace superabounded. This is the experience of the believer. The unbeliever, sin increases and it kills him. It destroys him. Right? It murders him. It does him in. For the Christian, the dynamic is reversed. The law comes. Sin increases. But grace overwhelms sin. Grace overcomes it. Why? Because... We are dead to sin. Sin is dead to us. We have died. How do we die? Because when we've trusted in Christ, we are crucified with Him. Right? We are, our sins were nailed. Our old self has been, has been uh, uh, mortified. It's been destroyed. It's no longer I who live. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. I am dead. Sin, sin is dead to me. The law is dead to me. I know that's not our experience. I experience sin. I'm going to experience it tomorrow. But I trust not in my experience. I trust in the Bible. I trust in the gospel. And the gospel says the truth. The reality is sin is dead to me. 
I am alive in Christ. I am born again. I am raised with the power of Christ's resurrection. I am a new person in my nature. And the sin that I feel are the residual effects of sin in my flesh. That's waging guerrilla warfare. But it cannot do anything with my positional status of being born again in Christ. Grace superabounds. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then chapter 6, verse 1. Then, if that's true, let's let's grant that premise. And the objection again is verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul, you're saying that the gospel of free grace actually increase, encourages lawlessness because more sin there is and there's more grace. So what you're actually telling us is we should sin all the more. You are espousing antinomianism, right? You're preaching lawlessness because that will, in fact, increase the grace and mercy and the love of God. Take it to its logical conclusion. But see, that's where... We study the Bible where we limit our logic to within the framework of the scriptures. Right? We don't take scriptural truths to its logical conclusion. We maintain the paradox that is contained within the Bible. So for example, God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. God is sovereign in terms of salvation. God is sovereign in our lives. That is true, but we don't take that truth to its logical conclusion because in our logic, if that is true, then the implication for me is I don't have to be a deacon or deaconess. I don't have to go to missions. I don't have to go to church. I don't have to give. I don't have to serve. I can just relax here because God saw it, right? And that's logical, but that's not biblical logic. The Bible presents paradox. In every doctrine, there is a paradox. God's sovereignty, but God's sovereignty is, is the means of it is through our suffering, our sacrifice, our obedience. Therefore, we are to go and evangelize the world. You see, Paul, how he lived out God's sovereignty through his life. It's paradoxical. The hypostatic union of Jesus. He's fully God, fully man. That's not logical. It's not contradictory. It's paradoxical. Right? The inspiration of the Bible. Who wrote this book? God did. What about man? Your man wrote it. That's contradictory. No, holy men inspired by the Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. It's paradoxical, but it's not contradictory. You don't take a single truth and carry out to its logical conclusion. You, you, you maintain the logic within the framework of the scriptures and you find paradox, which is apparent contradiction, but there is no contradiction. Likewise with this law gospel dynamic in our hearts. Yes, when sin increases, grace super increases, but the opposite is not true. We don't sin and that glorifies God more. No, we fight sin. Right? We labor. We make every effort towards holiness, book of Hebrews says. Right? Because that's what the gospel of Christ teaches us. Now, uh, Paul has a better way of saying this. I mean, this antinomianism, these antinomians, <coughs> this is not a, a fictional character. These are not a fictional people. They exist in the world. Right? This threat is real. They're not creating a straw man and trying to like intimidate people. These antinomians existed in the New Testament, Jude 1.4. Certain people have crept them unnoticed, 
who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our Lord into sensuality, who deny our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. These are people who pervert the gospel. Right? I want you to know their antinomia is not because they believe the gospel. Their antinomia is because they deny the gospel. They deny Jesus. The reason for their sinfulness is not because they love Jesus, but it's because they hate Jesus. They were there then, and they are, they are here now. Antinomians are real, and the, the spirit of antinomianism is real in our hearts, every single one of us. But we do not assign blame to the gospel or grace and blame Jesus for it. The blame is all on us. So how does Paul respond to this objection? And he does this with an optative mood, right? So, I mean, just... I'm not a you know English guy, grammar guy. I only do it if I have to, if I'm forced to, if I'm like compelled to by the scriptures. Uh, there's four moods in the Greek language: imperative, indicative, imperative. Right? We talked about that already. And there's a subjunctive mood, like might, potentiality, let us, should, ought. There is this fourth mood called optative mood, and it's very rare. You only find like 23 times, 23 verbs in all the New Testament in the Greek. And out of 23, 14 times Paul uses it. 12 out of 14 is negative. In the positive, it's wishing, right? It's the idea of hoping for wishing. The negative is certainly not. It is, it is negative. It's a declaration. Like for, forbid it. And that's how Paul responds. Every time this objection is raised, verse 2, by no means, by no means, meganato, right? And other ways of translating it is, God forbid, certainly not. That is ridiculous. May it never be. That is absurd. It's a strong negative phrase saying, in no way is this possible. It is not a possibility when someone says, oh, vegetables are not healthy for me. You know, I work out, I'm getting weaker, right? I'm studying, I'm getting dumber. That, that makes no sense, right? That's like, that's illogical. That's against reality. Likewise, the idea that grace makes you sinful, Paul says, no, God forbid, it's absurd. It's, it's, not, it's, not, even like, it's not even a possibility. Why? Because we are dead. Verse 2b, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Right? We have died with Christ. Justification that we receive is not just for our salvation, it's for our Christian life. It sanctifies us through our death and resurrection in Jesus. All Christians, we are dead. We have, when you are dead, you are uninfluenced and unaffected by the affairs of life. Right? When you are dead, you, are, you have no sensitivity to sounds, tastes, or pleasures. All these senses, all these external stimuli has been, you've been cut off from them. So a Christian is dead to sin. Christian is dead to the law. This expression is found throughout the scriptures. Galatians 2.9, dead to the law. Colossians 3.3, you are dead. Your life is hidden with Christ. 1 Peter 2.24, we are dead to sin. This is the reality the Bible teaches us against our experience. But the truth is we are dead. We are alive in Christ. We've been risen with him. Therefore, sin has no power over us. 
And to say that grace makes us sin when grace has killed us. We've been crucified with grace, crucified with Jesus. Makes no sense whatsoever. This argument is found throughout the book of Romans. You'll see it in chapter 3, verse 8, chapter 3, verse 31, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 15. You'll find that meganeto again. You'll find it in Romans 11. You'll find it in Galatians three times. And now go to Galatians chapter 2. We find it in our text this morning. That was all introduction, right? Now we get to our text this morning on Galatians 2, 17 and 18. This is the same question, right? It's the same question, but just a different spin on it. Different take, different um, angle to the same issue of does grace promote sin? Does Jesus promote, encourage sin in us? So again, the previous context, verse 15 and 16, was about justification. So Paul presents the gospel, and then this question comes. So he reformulates the question in verse 17. Some commentators believe that he's actually quoting this question, this accusation levied by the Judaizers, and he's answering them here. Verse 17, But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were too found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? The clue is, is the word sinners in verse 17. We were found to be sinners. That word Paul just used in verse 15, when he talked about Gentiles, there are Gentile sinners. This was how Jewish people often, uh, the term that they used described Gentiles. Oh, sinners. Oh, you mean Gentiles. Yeah, same thing, right? Gentiles were synonymous with sinners. Now, the lesser reason why they use sinners as a label for Gentiles was, the lesser reason is because of their lifestyle. Gentiles were sinful, right? Uh, Paul describes the Gentile lifestyle before they came to Jesus in Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, and how they were living out the passions of their flesh. Because they didn't have the Old Testament law, anything that they desired, they lived out like animals, right? They uh, indulge in all kinds of desires, the body and of mind. They are by nature children of wrath. You go to Romans 1, 28 through 32. Don't turn there. I'll just read it for you. Romans 1, 28 through 32. Here, Paul, in chapter 2 of Romans, he describes Jews. In chapter 1, he describes the Gentiles and what their life was like before Jesus. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, as he talks about sexual sins, deviant sexual sins that, that are just, um, just blows, blows, blows us away. That's the lifestyle of the Gentiles and the Jewish people knew us. They just called them sinners. That's a lesser reason. But the greater reason for this label was because they were outside the law. They were outside. They didn't have the law. The law was given to Jews. They didn't have Sabbath. They didn't have the circumcision. They didn't have the rituals, the sacrifices. So anyone outside the community, the covenant community of Israel, and they they, they had the law. They were the righteous people. So even though in Romans 2, 
Jewish people were sitting the same sins that the Gentiles were committing. They didn't consider themselves sinners because they were they had the law. So they were sinners because they didn't have the law. This is what Paul is saying. Right? The complaint is, in our efforts to be justified in Christ, we were found to be sinners. And the Greek word eurisco is eureka. Eureka, I found it, right? We don't use that word anymore, but years ago people used to use it, right? Eureka, I found it. We were discovered to be sinners. Is Christ a servant of sin? So, so the, I, the mindset, the, the, the line of reasoning is this. Paul is seeking justi- justification by faith. So he sets aside circumcision. He sets aside Sabbath all the rituals, all the ceremonies. The premise of the Judaizers is anyone who does that is a sinner. Therefore, you are found to be in sin because you're not promoting circumcision. Then their conclusion is then Christ is actually a servant of sin. Christ is promote. Do you see that absurd reasoning? For them, sin is not being circumcised. Not keeping that's that's a premise they will not let go. Therefore, anyone who espouses abrogating the law is a sinner. And if the gospel does that, then Jesus is the servant of sin. Right. I hope that made sense. If not, talk to me next week. Tonight they tell me busy today, right? With, with the other issue. Right? That's the sin. Right? Therefore, Christ is a servant of sin for anyone who 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 nullifies the law, who sets, who sets aside the law of God. Paul says, no, Megenoito, certainly not. That's absurd. That's ridiculous. Your premise is wrong. Sinning is not not being circumcised. Sinning is bringing circumcision back in. Right? Sinning is not setting the Old Testament laws aside. The sin is bring the Old Testament law back into the Christian church. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself as a transgressor. Right? So, by the preaching of the gospel, Paul told, so Paul is being gracious here. He should have said Peter. Right? Peter is, with one hand, he's destroying the law, and with the other hand, he's building it back up. But Paul is gracious. He uses himself as an example. And if I rebuild what I tore down, what I uh, a Kalua destroyed. And how did he do that? By preaching Jesus, justification by faith. He destroyed this whole system of justification by works. We're accepted by God not through works. He tore it down. With his, so if, if he does it with his right hand, but with his left hand, at the same time, he sneaks in circumcision. He sneaks in dietary laws. He sneaks in all the commands of God with his left hand. If that's what he's doing, then he proves himself as a transgressor. He's telling the Judaizers, no, Jesus is not a servant of sin. You are the servant of sin. Anyone who does this is a servant of sin, not Jesus Christ. F.F. Bruce said that anyone who having received justification through faith in Christ, thereafter reinstates the law in place of Christ, makes himself a sinner all over again. right. So who is a sinner? It's not the one who's preaching Christ and believing in Christ and living by Christ. It is the one who seeks to uh, sneak in the law in the life of the believer and enslave him all again uh, back to 
uh, back to enslavery. Paul uh, wrote this, right, to the Galatians because they were in danger of this very thing. I, you know, Paul, wow. Because the Galatians were being enticed and tempted, intimidated. These, these Pharisees, these Judaizers, these experts of the law were coming to Galatia and they were telling him to do all these things to be accepted by God practically, not that they're Christians. So they were being tempted to, to abandon Jesus, to be cut off from Christ. So he is telling them these truths to save and rescue them. Why are we studying Galatians? Because every single one of us is tempted with the very same thing. Every day we're being enticed to trust in the law, to hope in the law, not the law, but our obedience, our, our, our faithfulness to commands as a way to be accepted by God. That's the reality. Every single day we're we're intimidated out of fear, out of, out, of, out, of, out of pride. We are enticed away from Jesus, from the gospel, to stand before God and others based upon our obedience rather than Christ's obedience on the cross. That is why we're studying Galatians. That is why these aren't just hypothetical truths. Oh no, there goes James, that theology again, doctrine again, it's relevant to me. No, this is relevant to everyone here. That's why Paul wrote this to Galatians, and that's why we're studying it this morning. Paul goes to the heart of the gospel in 19, 20, and 21. We'll study this in, in, uh, in weeks to come. And so, no, just, and you know, happy times are coming. You know what I mean? Like, good times. We're going to just rejoice together. We're going to stand up and shout. And we study verse 20 and 21. I mean, it's going to be glorious, the doctrine of being in Christ. We are in Him. We are crucified with Him. We live because He loved us and gave Himself for us. It's going to be a glorious truth. Right? That is to come. And, and that's how Paul deals with this accusation of antinomianism. So that's for the future. Close with um, these three implications. I want to shepherd your heart with these three thoughts. Right? May I inform your heart? and You know, just... I, I beg of you just to open your heart to these thoughts and, and really consider them. Take them to your heart. First of all, I know that many of us, there is an abiding fear in our hearts of being an antinomian. Right? This emotion of fear is powerful. So, for, for so many reasons, we don't want to be antinomians. We don't want to be selfish. We don't want to be sinful. We don't want to shipwreck our faith. We want to make sure that we're godly and mature and holy before God and for others. And uh, we hear the gospel of Christ, and it's so radical. But instead of freeing us, it produces fear. Oh man, like, if I believe this, and it's, I won the lottery, what if I become lazy now? What if I become more selfish? What if, what if I become like that person over there? like being complacent and worldly and carnal. And so out of that fear, we try to balance the gospel with the law. Yeah, I believe the gospel, but I'm not ready to let go of the law. I'm going to hold on to it. And I'll have best of both worlds, right? I'll have Jesus and the law. 
And that's how the law deceives us. That's enticing us away. We'll study this in weeks to come in Galatians 2.20. But you've been crucified with Christ. This holding on to the law is an illusion. You're born again. You have a new heart. Don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to slavery. Trust in Jesus. And trust, you know, not my experience, right? Don't just look to me. I mean, there is a sense where you look to your elders, look at the outcome of their life, outcome of their faith, and you see the fruit that's produced in their life, in their family, in their ministry, and that encourages you in your pursuit of Christ. There is an element to that. But we have greater examples, even apart from Jesus, uh, that we can look to in the Bible to see what faith does. That faith in God, in Christ, in grace, does not produce lawlessness. It does not produce like shallow Christianity. It produces radical Christianity. And look at Hebrews 11. Don't turn there. We studied this two weeks ago. How how, How Abraham obeyed by faith. And he went to a place not knowing where he was going. He left his family, left his home, left his culture, not to obey God out of works-based righteousness, but by faith. Consider Moses, when he had grown up, he he refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God and to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. Look what faith did in Moses' life. Look at others. They were mocked. They were flogged. They were in chains and imprisoned. They were stoned, sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy of them, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. You'll find that as you let go of the law, again, the, the, the idea, the doctrine of trusting in the law for righteousness, as you let go of that and trust in Christ, your heart be inflamed with motivation to live for God and to obey His commands, to be radical Christian men and Christian women. Second thought is this, but James, what if I tried this gospel thing and I feel more antinomian, right? My life, I'm not reading the Bible as I used to. I'm not memorizing as I used to. I'm not evangelizing as I used to. I'm not as pure and holy as I used to. And I think it's this whole gospel freedom thing. It's not working for me. I need to go back to the law. No, you know, you know what's happening? The gospel is not making you an antinomian. God is revealing your antinomianism that's already in your heart. It was always there. It was always there. You were just blind. I was blind to it. But now with this freedom, we are seeing it, maybe for the first time. And so the father with the two brothers, younger two sons, the younger son, what a selfish, you know, crazy guy. He takes his father's inheritance and he ran off and shamed the father. Some would say well, the father created the son to be selfish. He was fine until he gave him that request. And now look at him. He's a selfish, lawless guy. No, that heart was always there. If the father said, no, I will not give it to you. You must stay in the household. 
Does that change the son's heart? No, his heart is still antinomian. He's still selfish. Even though he's not, you know, a profligate, like just wasting away father's inheritance, he's still in sin. The freedom that the father gave just exposes the sinfulness of the younger brother. Likewise with you and, and I. When you feel like you're becoming less godly because of gospel freedom, no, what's happening is you're being more revealed, exposed, so that finally God can deal with your heart. You can have your heart laid bare and God could deal with the, the deep sin, the sin behind the sin, and, and wrestle with you and share with the ugliness of sin and the beauty of the gospel and transform the inner man. That's what's happening. But as long as you hold on to the law and you want to believe the lie of your external righteousness, then nothing really profitable is happening because it does not please the Lord and there is no true change in the inner man. Same thing with the legalist, the older brother. He had no idea he was a legalist until when, when he had to forgive his younger brother. And he couldn't. He couldn't. That's what gospel, gospel does. People say, I'm not a legalist. Well, yeah, let's see. Someone wrongs you. A family member, someone close to you hurts you. And you get angry and you will not forgive. You will not forgive. So much so that you'd rather be outside the gospel. You want to stay with your anger, your righteousness. You ha- you're, you're, you're right. This is not fair. And you will not forgive. And that, that God, that's how the gospel reveals that you're a legalist. You're always a legalist. It's just coming out when the gospel says, forgive just as I have forgiven you. So you're not becoming more of an antinomian or more of a legalist because of the gospel. The gospel is just revealing all of this. Why? Because the Father would go out to you because he wants a relationship with you to bring you into the tent of joy to be with him. That the younger son would come in and be a son again. The older son would come in and be part of the family and rejoice again because that is the heart of God. He doesn't want our outward obedience. He doesn't want our performance. He wants to love us and have us love him. And the final one, okay, this is like, I got to really slow down here. I got to calm down because... You know, I end with a bang, right? It's not going to end with like just teaching. I end with like quietness. So, okay, let's calm down. So, that's first. The third one is, okay, James, we're not antinomians. And we're also not pronomians, right? That's a real word. I looked it up, right? We're not anti, we're not pro. So, what are we then? What do we do with the Bible? What do we do with the law? Uh so reformers had this thing, you know, Paul said, 1 Timothy 1.8, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. There is a right way to use the law and a wrong way to use the law. Wrong way to use the law, you kill yourself, right? I'm being dramatic there. I take that back. You harm yourself, right? If you use it right, it helps you. And so the reformers had this three uses of the law. There are three ways Christians are to use the law. One is civil use of the law, the magistrate use of the law. The law is the foundation for all society, all government throughout the world, and used to curb sin. The commandments of God is used as a foundation, as an ethic. Where does our ethics come from? It can't be relative. It can't be cultural. It can't be uh, subjective. It has to be objective. Where do we find it? The law of God, the civil use of the law. There is a pedagogical use of the law. 
guardian, tutor. Galatians 4, 3, 24, and 25, the law was our guardian, our tutor that led us to Jesus. Before Jesus came, we were under the tutelage of the law and it humbled us, broke us, and drove us to Jesus. And now we're in Jesus. We don't go back to our babysitter, right? The pedagogical use of the law. And there is a third use of the law, which is the didactic use of the law, teaching and instruction. So the law doesn't condemn us no more as Christians. The law doesn't save us or heal us. But the law, the scriptures, old and new, all the imperatives instruct us. It rebukes us. It corrects us. And it trains us in righteousness. There you go, right? So Horatio Bornar in his book, God's Way of Holiness, said this. But what will tell us what is to regulate service if not law? Love, they say. This is a pure fallacy that love will tell you what to do. This is a pure fallacy. Love is not a rule. Love is a motive. Love love does not tell me what to do. It tells me how to do it. Uh, Love constrains me to do the will of the beloved one. But to know what the will is, I must go elsewhere. Does that make sense? To know what the will is, I must go elsewhere. The law of our God is the will of the beloved one. And were that expression of his will withdrawn, love would be utterly in the dark. It would not know what to do. It might say, I love my master. I love his service. I want to do his bidding, but I must know the rules of his house that I may know how to serve him. (coughs) Love without law to guide its impulses would be the parent of will worship and confusion as surely as terror and self-righteousness unless upon the supposition of an inward miraculous illumination as an equivalent for law. Love goes to the law to learn divine will and love delights in the law as the exponent of that will. And he who says that a believing man has nothing more to do with the law save to shun it as an old enemy might as well say that he has nothing to do with the will of God. The divine law and the divine will are substantially one. The former, the outward manifestation of the latter. If you didn't get that, it's okay. Let me illustrate it. My own life. You guys, many of you guys, most of you guys know the story. My first gift to my wife, you know, I just went head over heels for her. And I want to show her my love for her. My first gift to her was a basketball. I wrapped it in wrapping paper and I gave it to her with the most sincere heart a, a, a boy can ever have. And she received it and she was like, what in the world is this? Right? She wasn't impressed. And I knew why. I said, because, and my second gift was basketball shoes. Right? She wasn't impressed because she needed shoes to play basketball. She didn't have shoes. So I got her basketball shoes. Well, I loved her, but I didn't have instruction on how to love her. Right? I needed it. So certain told me years later, James, like, basketball, that's not a good gift. Basketball shoes, no, flowers, right? Right? Uh, chewy things to eat, <laughs> right? Like, you know, walking the beach, right? Those kind of things that it's hard, right? Those kind of things are, she instructed me on how to love her. I'm doing a much better job. Well, likewise in our walk with Christ, Gospel fuels us for our, in our relationship with God. But we need to know how. Right? We need to know what to do in the scriptures. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching 
And for reproof, rebukes. If I take my wife to a basketball game, she rebukes me and said, James, enough about basketball. Take me to ballet. Or rebukes me. That's good. I need rebuke. And then she corrects me. God corrects us to go back in the right way. And then he trains us to continue to walk in, in its path. Right? So scriptures, the law, the Old and New Testament, right, teaches us, rebukes us, corrects and trains us. All the while, we're empowered by the gospel. So the gospel is like an engine of a car, and the, the scriptures are the steering wheel and, you know, a map. Right? Before GPS, it was a map, right? It teaches us where to go and where not to go. We need both, right? Um, that's why as Christians who love the law, the scripture no longer kills us. It has a reverse dynamic. It doesn't increase our sins like Paul experienced in Romans 7. It increases grace. Therefore, as Christians, like no one else, we love the law. Right, like Psalm 119. Right, God's word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Right? How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek your commands. In the way of your testimonies I delight. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. I will run the path of your commandments. They enlarge my heart. You enlarge my heart. I delight in your commandments which I love. Psalm 1997, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I gain understanding. So that's the law to us, and we love the law. Now, for Christians, the, the terminology that I want to use, I think we want to, this is biblical, is we use the word law for Old Testament, but it connotes extrinsic motivation. The law connotes blessings for obedience and, and uh, punishment for disobedience. Paul used another phrase for the Christian law, the law of Christ, and he called it the will of God. All right, so all the New Testament imperatives, they're not law to us. They are the will of God. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Colossians 1, 9, and 10, from the first day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom, understanding. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So the New Testament scriptures, New Testament imperatives, applications, that's the, that's the roadmap. That's the steering wheel. That's the wisdom of God. That's the will of God that teaches us how to love God empowered by the gospel. And so in no way does the gospel nullify the law. The gospel and the law work together beautifully to produce this life where there is no boasting in self. All glory goes to God. And God gets the glory because he has done it all. Well, much time has passed. Let us stand and we'll close in prayer. I can just give you a minute just to respond to uh, the gospel in your heart through, your, through prayer. And I'll, I'll close in prayer.
Father, we have so many things to thank you for on this day. We uh, came through a, a tough Sunday and a tough week, but Lord, we know that you've caused us in our lives that we will not rely on men, rely on ourselves, rely on our church, but we will look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, we thank you again for this day, for the deacons and deaconesses that you've given us gifts to our church. May you, Lord, you, would you bless them? Oh Lord, would you shine your face upon them, these precious men and women whom you have, you have called to serve? Lord, would you grant them much grace? And God, we thank you for the law of God. We thank you for your testimonies, your precepts, your instructions. We thank you for using the law, the will of God to, to rebuke us, to correct us, to teach us and to train us in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But God, may we have uh, the gospel as the foundation. May we have Jesus as the cornerstone of our lives and may he be the fuel that empowers us to run on the path of your commands. We thank you, God, for this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.